Hi friends, it's that time again for another edition of uh, Out of Context. So, to start this off, um, I would just like to state that this is a true crime week. Um, I did, you know, hours of research on this case just because I found it super interesting after um, listening about it again because I knew about this case before. Uh, It's been a while, but definitely forgot that it existed until I heard it on um, the podcast that I'm going to link down below. Uh, absolutely adore it. But um, anyways, so this week's episode, um, like I said, true crime week. Um, we had the break as I had Christmas parties to go to. And um, on that note, I hope everyone's holidays were, were good and they had a fun time and that everyone is still healthy and safe. Um, But I just want to warn everyone that uh, if you have a weak stomach, I will not blame you for wanting to skip out on this episode because it is going to be fucking brutal. Um, As a general warning, um, there will be talk of sexual assaults and rapes um, throughout the things um, throughout the whole thing, uh, and just overall, the ending crime in this case is just definitely had a little bit of a hard time sleeping after looking at some of the crime scene photos myself, and that's saying something because I listen to true crime for fun. Um, I'm a weirdo. What can I say? But as a general warning for, other than the one that I just gave for this episode, um, just know that many officers that responded to this crime scene ended up quitting um, and left. Uh, Most of the evidence is in fact locked away, like the the brutal evidence. Um, You can still find like crime scenes of, crime scene photos of after the body was taken away and stuff of just like the blood splattered everywhere. Um, But most of the harder evidence that was shown to the jury is locked away from public view. You cannot find it. It is under lock and key because it has been stated that if anybody sees any of the crime scene videos or the more brutal stuff, that they will be quote, changed forever, unquote. Um, So yeah, when I say it's brutal, I mean, brutal. Uh, It definitely um, impacted a lot of people to this day. uh, Many of the first responders say that they still need therapy um, just to try and deal with what they saw that day. Uh, Many of the jurors left the jury. They're like, I can't, I can't do this. I have to opt out. You have to find somebody new. Um, So with that being said, um, I'm let's get into it i'm gonna start um so if you want to stick around cool if not i completely understand no it's not for everybody um definitely not something that most people can stomach um if they're not used to true crime um even then this one's pretty bad so This week's episode is about Catherine Knight. Um, Catherine Knight is um, 
not really a well-known person in Australia, which is where she's from. She's just not like a household name, which is strange because she terrible person, absolutely garbage person. Um, that being said, Catherine Knight was the first woman um, to ever be sentenced in life, life in prison without possibility of parole in Australian history. Before that, uh, she was born to parents Barbara Rowan and Ken Knight um, on October 24th, 1955 in Tenterfield, New South Wales, Australia. Uh, She has seven siblings, four from her mother and stepfather, Jack, and three from her mother and father, Ken. Um, She is the pretty much the middle child from what I gathered. Um, Her four older brothers from her mother and stepfather. Um, And then she has an older twin sister, Joy, which I'll get into Joy. We hear a little bit about her and her relationship with Catherine. Um, And then obviously it's Catherine. And then they had uh, a younger sister and then I believe another brother. But she was the product um, of an affair that her mother was having um, with her stepfather, Jack Rowan's co-worker and friend from his job at the Aberdeen Meatworks. Um, that's a slaughterhouse in um, Aberdeen, New South Wales. Um, it's in Hunter Valley. It's just a little tiny conservative town um, close by to Tenterfield where she was born. It's known for its slaughterhouse industry, and that'll play a little bit more um, in her story come later. So that being said, to say that her family was a hot fucking mess was a complete understatement. Um, Her father, Ken, was an abusive, alcoholic asshole. Just to put into perspective um, how bad this man actually is, how much of a garbage human being, Ken is, he would rape Barbara, um, the kid's mother, several times a day, sometimes in front of the children. So not only was it, you know, regular abuse, like, you know, beating and yelling at Barbara so often in front of the kids that they thought it was how relationships were supposed to be, um, he was doing that in front of them as well. So yeah, great influence Ken is. Catherine also throughout the years in imprisonment and like in her life in general um, has claimed that she was sexually abused by many family members um, up to the age of 11. Uh, Honestly, knowing what Ken's done around like them growing up, it would not surprise me if this was true. It's never been like fully confirmed or investigated, but it would not surprise me at all. So, in school, Catherine, she was known as the loner. I mean, for good reason. She grew up in an abusive household. Um, And if her claims of sexual abuse um, are true, then yeah, I'd be an asshole too. Um, But that does not um, excuse her for being a garbage human being that she is. I'm not making excuses for her. I'm just giving you a little bit of backstory to try and understand where she's coming from. Um, so she was known as the loner, um, just an all-around b- 
big bully to everyone, including her own sister, her own twin, Joy. Uh, in fact, they got into so many fights in school that they eventually had to be separated to the point that if one person was down the hallway, they had to be steered the other way because they would just start fighting. Uh, but if anybody said or did anything to either of the twins and they didn't like it, they would gang up on that person and beat the living crap out of them together. So, I mean, weird relationship, but all right, I guess. This continued on until the age of 15 when she eventually dropped out of school to start working. And this, this wasn't unheard of in Aberdeen. In fact, most kids in the town just went to school as a way to pass time until they could get out of it and start working. The first job she ever got once she dropped out was at a clothing factory, which was probably one of the only jobs she could get, seeing as she was illiterate. She could not read, she could not write. She just, she was there. So factory job, great for her. You learn by watching. And about a year after that, so roughly the age of 16, um, she got her quote unquote dream job at one of the slaughterhouses in Aberdeen. The job she started was um, gutting the animals and scraping the blood and bone marrow out of the dead animals. Uh, it was called the Awful Room. And she spent um, about a year or so there. She quickly got promoted, uh, like crazy quick, to a different section called uh, the Boning Section, where she was given her own set of butcher's knives. Um, that she then took home and hung above her bed just in case she ever needed them. You, you know, you can't see the air bunnies that I'm doing, but the air quotes are there. Uh, it was during this job, in fact, in 1973 when she met the man who would be her first husband, David Kellett. Um, Kellett was known as an alcoholic who loved to fight. It was during one of his fights that she actually caught his attention. Um, how, you ask? Uh, by joining in with him, you know, as he's fighting a group of men. And that being said, Catherine's not a small lady. In fact, she was known around town um, purely on her reputation of her anger and her strength. She was known for those two things. Uh, so to say she was a small lady is not true at all. She was, in fact, a very burly woman. Um, not saying that's a bad thing, just it's there. She's a not a small lady. Um, anyways, I, I digress. Uh, they had only been dating for about a, a year before Knight. Catherine Knight convinced David Kellett to marry, to get married. Um, so they did. In 1974, that's exactly what they did. Uh, as you can imagine, that went really well not. Uh, the relationship as a whole was toxic as hell from the beginning. Uh, you know, David being the abusive, not abusive, uh, not yet anyway, uh, alcoholic, you know, fighter that he was. And then there was Catherine who was, you know, highly violent and just toxic all around because that's what she grew up with. That's all she knew. Um, so very violent, very toxic from the start, and it really only got worse on their wedding night. Um, it was reported that Barbara, Knight's mother, um, said to Kellett at one point, 
like during the whole like reception of the wedding that he should quote be careful that one's got a screw loose unquote um i don't know about you guys but that is definitely not something i want to hear um, from my mother-in-law ever like you gotta be careful with that one that one's got a screw loose and not like in a funny way like oh there's just a little out there it's like a be careful she's gonna fucking kill you um so yeah their wedding day came to a close with um three rounds of sex from the newlyweds to consummate their marriage Um, when david fell asleep afterwards catherine grew enraged like blackout angry because she wanted at least four rounds so she did what any sane person would do and she tried to strangle her husband in his sleep yep you heard me correctly day one night one she tries to strangle him because he displeased her in some way Um, luckily david woke up and he was able to fight her off despite all of that happening And, like I said, despite all of that happening, he stayed with her for 10 or so years. Um, Yeah, 10 more years with her. Why? I will never know. But, alright, as we'll see, there's a pattern where she commits acts of violence and then they just keep being with her because that makes perfect sense, um, apparently. All of that being said, he was still an alcoholic ass who was constantly having affairs. Uh, At one point, uh, after Catherine gave birth to their second daughter, because they had two daughters together, um, after giving birth to their youngest daughter, uh, he left them in the middle of the night at home for a rendezvous with the mistress. Knight saw him leave caught him leaving and then proceeded to leave their two-month-old daughter on live train tracks in the middle of the night because that's the logical thing to do i guess now luckily a neighbor um, saw what was happening and saved the child before a train could even come but that's not before night stole someone's axe from their yard and then start she started to wander the woods and town swinging it threatening anyone and everyone she saw it was to the point that people were actually running and hiding from her because they were so terrified this was on top of her you know not only leaving the two-month-old daughter on the train tracks but on a different day she was violently swinging and pushing the stroller with the oldest daughter in inside of it um, around on a busy street so yet another case of child endangerment we love it Uh, needless to say after all of those occurrences put together the cops were in fact called which is good it's great perfect she can go get the help that she needs false she was taken to a psychiatric hospital uh, where she spent a few months there just a few not an overly, you know, amount, although she should have, because, you know, leaving your two-month-old on trade tracks is not the best way to go about things from, you know, 
common sense telling me so. Um, but yeah, she spent a few months in a psychiatric hospital. Um, it was there when she was diagnosed with postpartum depression. Uh, personally, I think a little bit more was going on. Um, but what do I know? I'm not a doctor. So, that being said, this also doesn't excuse the fact that when she was in there, she told a couple nurses that she wanted to kill the mechanic that had fixed Khaled's car a couple weeks before that because that then made it possible for him to leave her. And despite that confession and, you know, the child endangerment that got her in the psychiatric hospital, she was released with a clean bill of health. And David proceeded to take her back like the fucking idiot this man is. Although them getting back together, it doesn't last very long, maybe a year at most. Uh, Because in 1986, just a few months after they got divorced, Catherine got herself a new boyfriend. One David Saunders. Um, You'll notice that she has a pattern. She'll get, you know, one David and then she'll trade him out for a new David. Or, you know, one John and trade him out for a new John. She's she's a character, this one. Uh, But instead of getting herself, you know, somebody else that worked in the slaughterhouse with her, she got herself... um, a mining man instead. So David Saunders was a miner. Um, and within a couple months of dating Saunders, he actually moved in with Knight uh, and her two daughters that were living with her at the time. Uh, but unlike David Kellett, uh, he left himself an out uh, by keeping his old apartment. And Catherine being Catherine, that pissed her off, thinking that he was keeping secrets from her and uh, just in general, keeping things from her that that he didn't actually want her or want her around. So, like with her last David, the relationship turned toxic and violent. And the longer they stayed together, the more and the more he refused to get rid of his old apartment, the more violent night got. Going so far, and trigger warning for this, because this part made me livid. To the point that she got angry and took David's two-month-old dingo puppy and slit its throat in front of him. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna give you a second to um, digest that little bit of information. Yep, and she did it purely to show him what she could do with his things. To show him that she was the one in charge, that she could do anything to his things, and he would stay. And he did. Because even after that, even after the dingo incident, they ended up having a daughter together about a year later. And luckily, he ended up leaving her shortly after their baby was born. Because, you know, Knight can't be normal and she thinks she's living in, you know, some kind of TV show because she hit him over the head. Hit him over the head, right? Not with just like any old thing. It was with a clothes iron, you know, like to get wrinkles out of a shirt. I don't believe it was on, but still that could, that could hurt somebody real bad. 
and then on top of hitting him over the head with a clothes iron, she stabbed him with a pair of scissors. Yep. Stabbed him with a pair of scissors after hitting him over the head. What kind of TV bullshit is that? That doesn't even sound real. But it is. Catherine Knight is an enigma, that's for sure. But after that violent end with her relationship with Saunders, uh, she met a man named John Chillingworth. And strangely enough, for all reports, this relationship was not violent. It was, everything was kosher. In fact, they were together for three years and had a son. It only came to an abrupt end because it came to light that Catherine herself was having an affair um, with a man named John Price whoever one called Pricey. And again, strangely enough, by all accounts, you know, for as well as a relationship can go from it starting out as an affair it was smooth sailing with Pricey and Catherine as well in the beginning, um, to the point that the two daughters of Pricey's own that lived with him seemed to like Knight, seemed to enjoy her company. It, and it wasn't until in 1995 that they moved in together, and everything, like I said, was smooth sailing until Knight suggested they get married, and Price declined. And once he declined the offer of marriage, Dark Catherine came out to play, and yep, you guessed it. The violence and toxicity, it started up again, because Catherine Knight can't do anything half-assed at her. And in fact, got so bad that Knight actually framed Price for stealing from his company. What he, in fact, did, from what I heard and read on a couple different articles, um, was that he didn't steal anything. He took old, like, medical kits and, like, expired medical kits out of the trash and took them home so he could use them at home. So, not at all stealing. It's not like the company could use them. They were expired. They were old. You can't use that because OSHA. OSHA says no. So, my opinion, he wasn't stealing anything at all. But the company's opinion, she framed him so well that he got fired from his job. Yeah, she framed him so well that they fired him on the spot. They saw the evidence, quote-unquote evidence, and said, nope, you're done. And I believe he had held this job for a good 17 years, is what the one podcast that I heard uh, said. And I, that's crazy that after 17 years, they were just like, nope, you're done. So in turn, Price said, nope, I'm done and kicked Knight out. But that, that didn't last long. Seeing as a few months later, they started seeing each other again. However, this time it was a little different. 
considering he refused to let her move back in, and the more he refused, the more angry and violent she got over the smallest of things. And it all came to a head in February of 2000. Um, things started to reach their end. Like, the end end. Um, when Knight attempted to stab Pricey in the chest after an argument, this led him to take out a restraining order to not only try and protect his kids, but himself as well. I don't know how well that would work, um, considering they were still sleeping together and continued to sleep together until, uh, spoiler alert, um, his murder. So it was um, towards the end of February that he actually told his co-workers, quote unquote, if I go missing, her night killed me. And I don't, I don't know about you, but if a co-worker told me that, I'd take it pretty seriously, especially if I know that Catherine had already tried to kill him. Like, I already tried to stab him. He has a restraining order. Yeah. Spoiler alert, he wasn't wrong. Um, on February 29th, 2000, Price came home from work, checked in with his neighbors like he did every night. Because, um, you know, small town, you check in with your neighbors, make sure everything's going okay, see if they need anything. Turns out that they didn't, so he went in the house, did his nightly routine, and went to bed around 11 p.m. And Knight came over to his house because, like I said, they were still sleeping together. And this was shortly after he went to bed. She made herself something to eat, went and woke him up, they had sex, and Price went back to sleep. Because, you know, it's past 11 p.m. at this point, yeah, I'd be fucking tired too. So, when he fell asleep, Knight went into action. She grabbed one of her beloved knives and that again were above the bed where she slept. Proceeded to stab Price 37 times. And according to evidence, he woke up in the middle of the attack, but he couldn't fight her off. He ended up succumbing to his wounds. And Knight then dragged his lifeless body down the stairs, where she took him to the living room. And this is the part that's gonna get brutal. It's gonna be rough for a little bit. I'll try to get through it as fast as I can. Uh, but warning, this is this is the rough part. Um, so after she dragged his lifeless body down the stairs. She took him to the living room where she skinned him and hung the, what I'm going to call the meat suit, um, up on the hook, like on a coat hook, in the middle of the living room by the front door. She then decapitated his skinless body and cut pieces of him off to cook in a dish. During the investigation uh, at the crime scene, um, it was gathered that she then made herself a plate of the meal that she had prepared with parts of John, ate half of it, 
and then threw the other half away. She then lay next to Price's mutilated body, took a whole bunch of pills, and passed out in what can be inferred as a suicide attempt. Um, just as a, a side note, um, really cool fact that I learned on the podcast that, again, I'm going to link down below, because uh, if you want a more in-depth um, overview of this case, I definitely check out the, the link. That I, they did a great job on it. Um, one of them is actually an autopsy technician, so she does autopsies for a living, so she's all about the sciences. Um, she talked about the precision it would take to have to skin him so flawlessly that it would have taken hours to do. And the hands would have had to been so steady that they would have been like surgeon hands. Uh, and it was so clinical and professional that the medical examiner um, on the case was impressed. It was so precise that the medical examiner was actually able to sew Pricey's skin back on before the funeral. Yeah. So if you, you know, like science, you're going to find that little tidbit cool because I know that I did and not cool as in like, a, oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's like a, that's kind of cool in a fucked up kind of way. I'm slightly mortified and impressed. I don't know whether to be scared or applaud. So, you know, take that as you will. Uh, anyways, back to the case. When Price didn't show up to work, his co-workers that had war- heard his warning and, you know, listened to him and took it seriously, they were like, oh shit, he's definitely dead. She killed him. And they immediately called the police. And it's gonna get a little brutal again here. Probably not as bad as the, uh, the last part, but it's, uh, it's definitely something. Um, when the police showed up, they saw the horrific scene that I just slightly painted for you. Um, and they found, you know, not only the skin suit hanging up right next to the front door that they thought was fake at first, it was not. Um, they also found the mutilated body of Price and Knight passed out next to him, the comatose knight was immediately obtained and taken to the hospital to get checked out. And later when she woke up, she claimed to not remember the previous night's events. I, myself, I call bullshit. Just because, you know, that side note, the precision that it would have to take, the hours that she took to do what she did, that screams saying to me, that screams, I know exactly what I'm doing. But she's, you know, at the hospital claiming that she doesn't remember. You know, I can't be responsible for this. I don't, I don't remember what happened. Meanwhile, the police are still at the scene and they thought that they were horrified before, um, but that was, you know, before they inspected the house further. Um, Upon further inspection of the house, 
they found Price's head boiling in a pot on the stove with vegetables. And on the dining room table, there was two full plates of the other dishes that she had cooked with the pieces that she had cut off of him. Each labeled with a name, one for each of Price's daughters. She was going to feed his daughters parts of their father's body. That's a that's a big what the fuck, Catherine. Cause what the fuck? What went through your brain? What said, yeah, this is okay to do. I'm gonna feed these daughters. The daughters that love their father very much. Parts of it. Seems like a great idea. No, don't do that. Don't ever do that. And again, she's at the hospital this entire time just pleading that she shouldn't be held responsible of the murder of privacy because she didn't remember. The police said, yeah, no, and quickly arrested her for said murder. It was in October of 2001 when her trial was supposed to begin. But as I said before, the um, the jury, most of the jury, the first jury quit. And they're like, you got to find something, somebody better, somebody new. And so seeing that, she changed her plea to guilty. And with her changing the plea, the judge said, all right, case closed and sent her to prison. So she was marked as never to be released, and with that became, again, the first woman in Australian history to receive life in prison with no possibility of parole. And to this day, she tries to claim her innocence while serving her time and being the prison grandma. In, she's in prison. She's still alive. Um, and yeah, the, the prisoners that she's serving with really do call her Nana. Uh, she really is like the prison grandma, which I think is so fucked up. How are we going to let this lady just roam around like she didn't do anything? I mean, she's not roaming around. She's in prison, but still. She's just lived it up in there. But... With that being said, I think it's time to put this episode to a close. I tried to just give a, a brief overview as like my first dipping my toes in the water of true crime. Because um, yeah, it, it's a little different, true crime, especially this being the first case that I do is it's brutal. It's not for everybody, so um, that being said, I hope you guys found it interesting, those of you that stayed because it was definitely interesting to research um, and just hear about again because like I said I completely forgot that this case existed until I was hearing it again and I went oh yeah this bitch Um, but yeah if you guys want to hear more cases or whatnot just um just let me know but I will link down below that podcast that I was talking about 
probably one of my favorites out right now. Podcast-wise, it's it's pretty much the only one that I listen to because I'm trying to catch up to the newer episodes. Um, but I will also um, link down below the articles that I used. And there's a couple books out there about Catherine Knight. Um, I haven't read them yet, but from the brief synopsis of each one, I'm super interested and I might um, end up reading them just in my free time just because I think that this case is super interesting um, with her, you know, again being the first woman in Australian history to be sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole and never to be released. So, yeah, I think I'm gonna gonna give you your daily affirmation and um, try and bring you up after giving you that, that bummer of a uh, of a true crime episode. So, yeah. And uh, today's daily affirmation um, is actually a quote. Uh, I'm a sucker for a good Winston Churchill quote. And this one today is, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And I don't know about you guys, but hearing that, especially after uh, researching and just fact-checking and uh, listening to a couple different podcasts on this case, I, that you know brings me a little bit of um, happiness to hear because sometimes, even when you're trying your best, you still feel like you're failing somehow. Uh, so to know that somebody out there thinks that failure is not not the end that it's the fact that you keep going that you should think about and that's it's a pretty good way to end the day or start the day so um, with that daily affirmation being said let me know again what you guys think of it um, if you guys want more of these true crime episodes let me know. If you guys don't want it, let me know. Let me know what you guys want next week, and I'll try and get back on schedule now that the, the holiday is pretty much over. We'll try and get back into routine, and maybe next week will be a little bit more fun. Um, but um, I think I'm going to sign off, so bye for now, pals. I hope you all stay safe and stay well.